Welcome to Downstream. Tonight we're interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's copaganda. From bobbies on the beat catching baddies of the week to sprawling tales of morally compromised detectives with dysfunctional personal lives, the police come in all manner of guises and are a staple of film and television. And I'd probably wager that it's the most dominant presentation of a workplace or profession on our screens. In the US, shows about the police and law enforcement make up between a fifth and a quarter of scripted network TV, and the numbers aren't too different here in Britain. Indeed, the season six finale of Lion of Duty was the single most viewed episode of any drama since modern records began back in 2002. So what impact does the ubiquity of police and law enforcement in our popular culture have on how our criminal justice system actually works? And how does our own sense of what the police are and what functions they serve align with what it is that we see on the TV? And more importantly, do we have to cancel Superintendent Ted Hastings for being part of an unjust institution? With me to talk about all this and more are two of my favorite people that the internet has to offer. We've got bad cop Ben Smoke, the politics editor of Huck magazine, thorn in the side of the home office. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And making his Navarra Media debut because fuck it, it's the three-hander tonight. We've got film writer and podcaster and Sergeant Nice Guy, Casper Salmon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Reporting for duty. I don't know why I thought you had to be good cop, but you just sort of came across as good cop, would make me a cup of tea, offer to ring my duty solicitor, that kind of thing. Maybe Ben and I can swap halfway through and that will be even more terrifying to you. Yeah, that would that would be <laughs> utterly terrifying. I don't want that to happen. So just to kick things off, nice, easy question. You do not have a right to silence, by the way. We don't have Miranda rights on the show. Um, what exactly is copaganda? Casper, if you could kick us off. Oof. So I would say the um, mythology um, that is constantly shoved in our faces from a very, very young age, uh, which seeks to prove or make the case that uh, police force is necessary and more than necessary, a force for good in our lives. Um, and you see it everywhere. And as a film critic, I you know, had uh, my fair share of all of this, this bullshit, basically, it's essentially a lie. And it's pushed at us with such regularity across so many different forms of literature and, and films, TV, it's absolutely everywhere. Ben, do you, do you have a take on what copaganda is or how it is you understand it? Yeah, I, I think you know, Casper's kind of hit the nail on the head here. It is very much a sort of, it's adding a sheen to like the realities of what a, the kind of armed for armed, one of the armed wings of the state is is trying to sort of like make them be the nice guys the the nice Bobby on the B um, it's kind of transferring that into to wider media it's it's part of a, a bigger trend towards sort of jingoism that we've been seeing growing within this country particularly of late um, but as Casper says you know this isn't sort of a new thing in order to in order to continue that idea that we are we are policed by consent copaganda and shows like copaganda that copaganda shows are integral to that they are necessary for the current status quo to continue as it is I just very quickly also want to point out that copaganda isn't just fiction. So obviously we've got The Bill, Taggart, Rebus, Life on Mars, Law and Order, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, CSI, CSI Miami. Was there a CSI New York? Maybe there was. Um, it's not just these fictional shows that we're very familiar with. There's also non-fiction, non-scripted copaganda like uh, Live PD, Cops, and all of these kind of fly-on-the-wall documentaries where you see police going about their business, brutalizing people in a way which celebrates that kind of work. And I'm thinking here about copaganda not just being something which um, comes from the world of media, but as something which is deliberately engaged with and perhaps nurtured by the police. And so, Ben, I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about this because you've had um, a lot of experience with the police, shall we say. I want to talk about this kind of police to press and back again pipeline. Just how important is favorable media coverage and having a grip on the process of mediatization to the police operationally. 
So I think it's it's a it's an interesting but it's a huge question. Um, so maybe if we kind of take the example of uh, every year at Pride um, for the for certainly the last sort of decade or so, what you'll get is you'll get officers marching through in you know kind of rainbow the rainbow truncheons, um, and every year there will be some kind of affected. A proposal halfway through or you know cut to something like Notting Hill Carnival where you see you know cops sort of like they're dancing with punters um, and these things are so integral and so important to the way that the police portray themselves um, as these sort of these people are just simply there to you know, to, to look after us and to make sure that we're okay and it's everybody else that's the problem um, but fundamentally that's not the case and I think anybody that's been watching carefully or being on any of the demos recently particularly the kind of kill the bill ones will know that that's not true i think if we look at something like what happened in bristol over the period of a week at the end of march there were three demos in bristol and the violence there enacted by the police i was there on the last one on the friday evening which was the friday after the the riot van went up and the violence that i saw was was horrendous. It it was awful. It was it shocked me, and I would consider myself to be fairly gnarly um, and fairly sort of well versed in this. And I I was chatting to a pal the other day, and he was like, I he he was there also, and I sort of found him afterwards. And he says that my face was just eyes. Um, but the way that that was painted by the media was that it was the police who'd sustained injuries. It was the police who'd been attacked. And that's because the media and the, the cops had this sort of reciprocal arrangement where the, the cops will put something out, as they did on that Sunday night when the riot van went up, saying two members of the, the Avon and Somerset Police Force have had their bones broken. Uh, one of them has had a punctured lung. And that was the story. That was that was the big moment. And then it then transpired that that was bollocks. That was untrue. Now, a couple of weeks later, Netpol did some amazing investigatory work and found that there were 62 uh, injuries to protesters, at least across those three demos. And we're talking major, major injuries. Just from my own point of view, from what I saw, I saw people who were already very, very injured with blood all over them being clobbered again. We all saw the videos of people on the ground who looked like they were half unconscious being battered. And that's that's kind of... The way that the way that the cops can control these control these situations is is kind of two handed. That idea that when they're at these public order situations, they are friendly and they are happy, and you kind of think of them at, at carnival and you think of that, and then when it actually kicks off, they're the ones that are being aggressed at. They are the ones that are getting injured, and it's only it's only later it's only later on because the protesters don't have the access to you know the kind of big mainstream media operations that these forces do that actually the truth outs and unfortunately as we've seen time and time again that truth just the, the mainstream media isn't really that interested in that truth i mean casper if i could put this to you you've obviously got a quite you know broad sense of the history of film and television and from my perspective as um a propaganda stan i can't remember a time before it so a was brought up watching The Bill and I also really liked A Touch of Frost for some reason. I just thought he was very like grandfatherly. He was one of my faves. Um, but I can't remember a time before police dramas on television, even though the tastes around them have changed a lot. So is that broadly true? Has it been the case that as long as we've had film and later on television, that we've also had it being used as a vehicle for propaganda, or is it a more recent invention? I think it's a more recent convention, although I wouldn't be certain when there was when this um, when it got stronger, as it were, this kind of propaganda uh, bent in our media. But suddenly, you see police officers right at the early days of film, and in the early days of film, police officers are essentially a kind of punch and Judy figure, and they're quite interesting there because you know if you think about the police officers that. Charlie Chaplin was kicking the asses of quite literally in his early movies. Those are figures of incompetence rather than evil. And they're certainly, um, you know, uh, not fleshed out characters. So they're really just a trope, a figure. Um, and they suggest a kind of microcosm of the police as a necessary figure, a corollary to crime that keeps being committed. and and so. 
they essentially form this kind of unit that you see repeating itself over and over again. The copper does the crime, the crime, the police officer goes after the, um, sorry, the criminal does the crime, the police officer goes after the criminal, and then, you know, it just keeps repeating itself ad, ad, ad infinitum. Um, and then um, I think as films got more expansive and our understanding and characterization were able to deepen, um, you start to see that the police receives a more favorable kind of uh, portrayal in films. Um, and that figure of the of the bumbling cop, you can certainly see in film noir as as um, Demar moves on. Um, but actual actual propaganda and that portrayal of kind of action films, I would cite as starting um, with television particularly. Um, and the rise of the blockbuster uh, specifically because um, before then the idea of action films didn't really exist and cops as action figures uh, was uh, the idea of that was abetted I think by the rise of um, bigger films. I really do want to get into this question of genre because for me what's really interesting is the ways in which propaganda has kind of expanded to absorb some of the norms and even the criticisms of the police that you see in the genre of noir. But let's get into line of duty because I do think that line of duty raises some interesting questions for us about what the test is for considering a piece of fiction, a vehicle for pro-police ideology. So how much criticism of the force can propaganda feasibly contain before it stops being propaganda and maybe starts being something else? And just so we're all on the same page, here is a clip from the show. Spoiler alert, there's spoilers because it's a clip from the most recent series uh, featuring one of its main characters, Superintendent Ted Hastings. I am attempting to uphold standards in public office. Public trust can only be maintained where wrongdoing is held to account. My God. You must have been living in a different country the past few years. Andrew, you've been briefed. You can't say you weren't warned, Ted. Not only warned, but a final warning. Look, Mom, I cannot lead my unit if at every twist and turn I am being asked to second guess how my orders are going to play out at HQ. All right, so does the fact that Ted Hastings is presented as this flawed but essentially moral crusader in an institutionally corrupt force mean that line of duty is saved from being propaganda or is it doubly propaganda? How, how much propaganda are you dealing with with the line of duty? I'm going to go with Casper, you tell me first. I think uh, this, is, this is almost pure unadulterated propaganda here. <laughs> The, the the show takes it as read that we need to situate the story within the police force. Any story that even starts with the police force embarking on some kind of investigation, you're already looking at something that's falsifying what the police actually gets up to, which most of the time is just bumming around looking for somebody to convict on whatever charges they feel like that day, right? We know that coppers on the beat are just basically looking for something to do and, and they, they have not much that they have to do or can do. So I think even just the premise makes this programme uh, propaganda, and then the idea of you know these uh, crusading figures who want to bring the police back to some supposed pure mission is is really ludicrous, um, and it, it's you know um, it, it's slightly salvaged by the fact that we're presented with these morally ambiguous characters at times. But really, I mean, they're let off so much. In the last episode, there's that bit where. Ted has this thing where we, we doubt him for a, a, a nanosecond and then his underlings go, oh, I believe the gaffer, though. Yeah, I believed in two, mate. And that's done. That's it. Oh, that was the only, you know, it was, it's over in about 10 seconds. That was the only dark moment that Ted Hastings could possibly have, in, have hovering over his head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and fight you in a minute. But before I do, Ben, copaganda, not copaganda, double copaganda. Yeah, so here's the thing. Like, I, I agree with Casper in that I think that you know, fundamentally what we need to look at here is what they are operating within still and under still is this premise, this idea that the police are good, that these structures that the police uphold and are part of 
are good and are a force for good and can ever be a force for good. Now, what I think is interesting here is that I want, you know, I will, I will, pre I will preface this by saying ACAB is an important political point and it is one that I completely agree with. But I also think what we need to understand is that there are people who go into the police force, who become police officers, because they believe that it can do good, that they can do good in society through it. And so what I think that people like Hastings show is that within this system, this rotten system, which is unsalvageable, no matter how many Hastings you have within it, no matter how many law-abiding cops you have within it, this system is built to oppress, it is, it is built to denigrate, it is built to uphold a structure of laws that were written and constructed to uh, continue the grasp of capital and power with a very small elite and to batter down the working classes. But what Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Line of Duty? What? <laughs> Mate, it's been a very that's, long. That's a different form of like manufacturing consent <laughs> for state violence. That's a different one. I was doing so good then too. Like what Line of Duty I think does is raises quite important political questions for people that are considering these questions right now around what you do with the people that are in the police who believe that they're doing something good because then that enters into the wider problem that we have with the police force, which is that they essentially, they believe their own hype. They believe their own story. They believe that what they are doing, it is a cult. It's a weird little cult. And that's why you have all of these 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 people protecting the corrupt officers. That's why at the end, when you had this, the commissioner, superintendent, whatever he was, that sketchy lad, the Welsh one, who was like, there is no corruption here. He was covering it all up because they believe, they fundamentally believe that they are a force for good. And how do you deconstruct that? How do you even begin to get people out of that cult is a question that we need to start thinking about. That Welsh lad, his name, by the way, is Chief Constable Osborne, I'll have you know. Um, I mean, look, so this is where actually I'm going to maybe disagree with both of you in terms of whether or not it's propaganda. If our measure for whether something is propaganda is it's not explicitly abolitionist, then yes, it's propaganda. But if our measure for propaganda is whether or not it presents the police force, even when flawed, as essentially redeemable, then I'm not sure that it is. Because I do think that line of duty turns the tables a bit. In each individual season, you've got the three heroes of Kate Fleming and Steve Arnott and Ted Hastings going after the wrongins in their midst. And at the end of each season, you know, they get their man or, or, or they get their woman. But overall, across the series, something else is happening. And that's this kind of net of conspiracies drawing tighter around them and their ability to have institutional backup is ever weakened from season to season. And so I think that presents quite a bleak view of the power of individual virtuous cops in a way which I think does present an institutional critique, whilst of course still being essentially a police drama which has at its heart, you know, three crusading protagonists. I don't know, who wants to fight me? Just yell at me now. Or me. Go, Go on, on Casper. <laughs> Just the idea of these three individual virtuous cops that you were talking about. I think if you're talking about something that goes so against the grain of the institution itself, um, then you're actually staging a big lie. Um, and even if the film, sorry, even if the program is presenting a police force that is endemically fucked, um, it still retains this idea of that possibility of virtue. And it leads with it, in fact, which a way, in, in, in a way that's um, completely meretricious. And it also um, carries on with this idea of policing as um, some sort of vocation. Um, and I think so many shows and films do that. And I, I just don't think it's, it's correct. And so it really takes us down a false path. I think that there was a really interesting part in this season when Kate, and sorry if you've not seen it, um, but I mean, we're talking about Line of Duty, so, but Kate walked, Kate left AC12. She went to go and work on the hill and there was this kind of weird half friction between the chemistryless 
Fleming and Arnold, um, where he started saying, you know, you've been in anti-corruption too long. You think every cop is wrong. You know, you're just, you're indoctrinated in this idea that cops are wrong. No, the cops on the, on the beat are doing good. Um, you know, we're doing good. Not every single cop is bent. And I think that that's kind of builds on my point. It's that idea that they believe the stories that they tell themselves about themselves and that is essentially what line of duty has done and yeah it is a much more interesting and a much more critical to a certain extent way of telling that story but at the basis of it is this idea that within that system you can have good and that's just not true and you know like this this series the series came out in 2012 so we started in 2012 it's obviously wrapped now in 2017 the david lammy review came out which kind of looked at the systemic racism within the criminal justice system and that was hardly touched upon actually within the whole of the series with this, I think this one started filming in like February, 2020. Um, your previous one would have been the previous year. There've been a couple of series that have been out with enough time for that to have really been taken into. And I think that the way that we look, the way that corruption looked, the way that corruption sort of felt within certainly the latter series of line of duty very much felt divorced from the realities of how most people in this country actually experience it. And that I think, is another reason why I, I, I would I kind of disagree with the idea that that we can that we can we could call it not propaganda because it doesn't really actually take into consideration the realities of a police force. See, I again going to just be fighting both of you all the time for my man <laughs> Ted Hastings. Um, I think that actually the weakest moments of the series of Line of Duty are when Jed Mercuro tries to do this kind of. Um, pivot into reality and find a way to integrate real life stories of corruption into the kind of fictional fabric of the world that he's created. So most notably in season three, they do that with this whole um, uh, plot line to do with um, an institutional cover-up of child sexual abuse at a boy's home. And one of the things that they do is they've got a stand-in for Cyril Smith, who is an actually uh, existing prolific abuser of children and also an MP. Um, they've got the stand-in for him called Dale Roach. And then they literally Photoshop in um, an image of Jimmy Savile shaking his hand. And so there are these kind of moments where I get almost real life whiplash where I go, oh my God, is there something a little bit tacky or insensitive or tasteless about trying to integrate this real life case into this fictional tapestry? And then the other time where they did that, and this is where I do think Jed Mercurio was trying to be responsive perhaps to the issues which were brought up by Black Lives Matter and doing it in a very British context was combining the cases of Stephen Lawrence and Christopher Alder. Christopher Alder, who died in police custody while officers were making mocking um, monkey noises to, to make fun of him, um, trying to combine these two into the so-called Lawrence Christopher case and borrowing elements from it um, to add to his own story of police corruption. And it was in those moments where I kind of felt like I don't know. I, there was that reaching out to reality, which I didn't quite like. I don't know if others felt that way. Well, I guess that's the point, isn't it? I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here is that when, if we're looking at this series, and that's why so many people, myself included, were so pissed off at the ending, because like, you know, what we've had is six series of just the most histrionic like absolutely batshit mental stuff of like a copper being in AC12 being like ex urgent exit and then people getting shot and people giving signs <laughs> being shot like that's what we wanted because this is the point it's a drama it is and it's a piece of event television and so in that in as a piece of event television and that's why it's so uncomfortable when it brings in the realities of, of police and that's why it, it can't that's why it can't it is propaganda and it can't be considered a real critique it's because it doesn't reflect reality it doesn't reflect what it actually means to be in a police force and can never do that within the format that it set itself up as and so i think we can obviously kind of critique it on its own basis and on its own grounds but the idea that it, it actually reflects anything that any of us really experience it, it is untrue and in of itself that may, means that it is propaganda 
I mean, Casper, I don't know if, if you agree with Ben here, but do you know what I mean by the weird tackiness of combining Stephen Lawrence and Christopher Alder into one case and rendering it semi-fictional? Completely. And um, But I, I think the idea was kind of laudable to to um, reference Stephen Lawrence and Christopher, Christopher Alder, sorry, um, but it's done as a kind of Easter egg. Like if you picked up on it, that was pretty clever of you because they've combined those two names to create one mega character standing for racist police brutality. And I think we didn't really get into those cases, you know, into the case of, um, is he called Lawrence Christopher? Yeah, Lawrence Christopher. Lawrence Christopher. Yeah, this is basically like a past inquiry and the journalist digging it up is the one who's been shot. And so... We don't actually get into the heart of the of what might actually matter, which is which is structural racism within the police force, and indeed the depiction of uh, race in the program is is super iffy as well. With uh, Chloe, the know all <laughs> the know all cop, solving the whole thing uh, while having no inner life whatsoever. So that shows you that there isn't actually a very reflective. Um, outlook in the programme and, and by the programme's makers on the sort of thing that they're doing. Um, and if I could just um, take you up on a second point, Ash, um, you've been pronouncing the name Jed Mercurio as if it's a normal name, um, and I can't have that. So <laughs> like, you should be saying Jed Mercurio, or just say it like that maybe <laughs> next time. Jed Mercurio. <laughs> yeah, Is that better? Yeah, that's much better. I'll do anything people tell me to. I'm an incredibly pliable host. Um, <laughs> but I, look, I agree with you on the very iffy depictions of race. Again, thinking about the way in which the setting is itself this composite. So it's sort of borrowing from bits of Birmingham, um, borrowing from bits of Moss Side in Manchester, but is a lot whiter than any of those areas actually are. And I think it's because they would be a bit worried about having an organized crime group, which was you know, explicitly racialized in any way. And so then it means you have to kind of whiten the geography. And then you've also got the bit where Ted Hastings, who is still my guy, don't get me wrong, being very iffy, leaning over a table saying, I'm blacker than you, son, which was inaccurate. Mm. Ted, inaccurate. <laughs> um, just uh, going to read out a super chat from Nick Hook, who has uh, donated five pounds very kindly. One of the guys standing for our region's police and crime commissioner on Thursday is a former copper, 32-year veteran. He's the Reform UK candidate. Enough said, really. Well, we've got to save some stuff for season seven, I suppose. Um just to move things on slightly from line of duty, there was something that you said earlier, Casper, which was about the way in which the job police actually do is represented in a way which is just completely um, devoid of the truth. And I was thinking about that being part of the appeal of propaganda, because police in fiction don't just occupy one role, but many roles. And it's kind of this magic um, figure who can be in a good interrogation scene, a psychiatrist or a priest at confession, a key for unlocking secrets and human mysteries. In an action sequence, they're soldiers or they're spies or they're Sherpas for the seedy underbelly leading you through all those places where you would normally fear to tread. And they convey this sense overall that in solving crimes, we live in a rational world where everything can be explained. And I was just wondering if you guys thought that that's also part of the ideological function of propaganda. It's not just that the police are themselves presented as hero heroic, it's that they are molded to fit into every single model of hero that we have existing in our culture somehow all at once. Yeah, I do think it's that. I, I do think that's a really strong element of the of the cop film, of the cop show, is um, presenting these heroes in different guises. But also, as you were saying, um, presenting this uh, this fiction, really, that um, there are these uh, detailed investigations constantly at play and that the cops are working on something that they're going to, if you got mugged, go out and look for fingerprints on the ground, you know, this rubbish. I mean, what's going to happen is that your case will moulder in some file and it will eventually 
be passed on to the higher ups in order to say uh, that, you know, they had such and such a number of um, hate crimes this year, you know, so it'll feed into the statistics. But this idea of the cops as always working on something and having this uh, uh, extremely necessary um, function in public life, I think is is really wrong. And I'm really interested to see how we don't get uh, depictions of the cops that go much beyond that in film. Um, and you never see a cop who just stumbles into the job um, because they couldn't think what else to do. Um, and you never see cops who are just sort of uh, living their daily life and trying to find some crimes and, you know, just dealing with things as and when. There's always some kind of through story and investigation that this emphasis on actually sorting something. And the fact is that so many cases aren't sorted out. They're just, they just are left to trail forever and ever. So I think that's a big component for me of the, the propaganda narrative. I mean, uh, Ben, you've had a few run-ins with the police. Do you feel that this image of the all-powerful, almost master of the universe um, presentation of the police, do you think that it reflects something about the invasive nature of state power, um, its unaccountability, its ability to interrupt day-to-day life in, in a real way, or do you think it's kind of a mask for you know incompetence, bumbling, and the fact that it's a force made up of people who couldn't think of anything else to do as Casper put it. I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting and it's it's maybe true. So what uh, as you said, like, you know, I've had I've had my own dealings and my own run-ins and um, you know, I have like a lot of friends who who organize and think something like spy cops, for example, which um, you know, saw the police infiltrate um various different groups, various different left-wing groups, and in some instances instances begin relationships with activists within that, you know, this is just really kind of abhorrent uh, state-sanctioned violence and behaviour. And it's really sort of put the shit up people, I think, in the left. And this idea that the cops are actually competent is a terrifying notion, because I think for most of us, and for and why it's so kind of important that they are portrayed um, more widely as this sort of like overbearing force, most of our experiences with them are that they're idiots. They don't understand it. You know, you if you push back a cop, say for example, you're kept in a kettle, and you go to leave, and the cop says, "We well, can't leave until you give me your name and address," and you say, "Well, under what power?" And they suddenly go, "What? Well, what?" So what under under what power are you asking right now for my name and address? And they shit themselves. They don't, they don't know. They don't have anything. They're just sort of trying it. Um, and over and over again, I think particularly with the way that the police have been in, enforcing the coronavirus legislation, for example, which you know, to a certain extent has been completely and utterly it's, it's been you know, ever changing and very, very difficult to, to kind of understand what's been going on for so many people, you know, every different aspect of it, every, the legal profession, it's been so loose. You know, these cops just don't really know what they're doing. And I think that propaganda and this sort of this idea of the cops as heroes, as, as the people, the kind of bastions of truth that are going to, they're going to find it, they're going to fight it, they're going to fight evil, they're going to make you safe. It helps them. Um, and generally, I think that we can kind of rest easy in the fact that they're not particularly competent. But they are, uh, evil isn't the right word, they are, they are still an arm of the state. And the state, when it wants to exert power, will do so. And it will do so in a way that is invasive and it is um, terrifying. And I think that that really needs to be remembered. Um, and that's why this is, it's so... That's why this propaganda is so important to them, because that sort of thing, you know, most people will agree is abhorrent. You're starting and fathering children with somebody under, under false pretenses because you have gone in to this group to infiltrate it. You, you, know, it's, it's, you can't really recover from that as a person. And I know so many people and, and friends who, who are still kind of scarred by even being glancingly close to those instances. So they kind of need this this idea, this cover to to cover up. And anyway, we've seen going through Parliament right now, we've got the policing bill, we've seen the overseas operation bill, we've seen Chiz. Now, they are capable of some of the most abhorrent things. Um, and so it's kind of this weird balance between uh, extreme incompetence and extreme state-sanctioned violence that 
propaganda just sort of papers over and makes it all good. I want to talk about the impact of the covert, covert human intelligence sources bill and also the kill the bill protests and the way in which propaganda is sometimes forced to be responsive to to um, political movements and, and moments of challenge to the state. But before we do, um, one, the thing you just said about um, spy cops and having these horribly exploitative relationships um, with the women they're surveilling. I had that moment. I felt like the WeeBay meme of just learning some information of like, oh my God, I've just realized something. In The Fast and the Furious, the undercover cop falls in love with Vin Diesel's sister and that's presented as a good thing. I've never seen it, but I can imagine that that's a vibe. That that's they 100% try and paint that as good. That that was I, I just realised. I was like, so, that actually, that it's a trope. The undercover officer falling in love with the woman that he's meant to be surveilling and sleeping with her, and then having a kind of inner moral turmoil afterwards is 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 a trope, and it's it's it's, it's a celebratory trope. They need that. Um... The idea of them as heroes and the idea of them doing something good in order to cover that so that they can get away with putting that in as a trope because then you know because you see that in a turmoil and we've seen it to kind of take it outside of that i've seen it on in various different places around sort of like immigration guards falling in love with people in detention and you know, fundamentally that's not what's happening somebody is being detained indefinitely and you are using your power to exploit them you know, sexually, emotionally, physically, whatever it is. But I have seen this in various different plays and and films and things, and it's just like that's it's fucking grim. It's gross, but we they get away with it because of to bring it back, but because of things like Line of Duty, which paint the cops as being inherently, you know, as paint paint the institution of the cops and paint most the majority of the cops within it as being inherently good and trying to do good by people which the system just doesn't allow for. It doesn't have that stretch. It just doesn't have the range. You you, you leave Line of Duty out of this because I want season seven. <laughs> and if you get it, canceled, I'm going to be furious with you. But I do want to talk about something, which is so far we've been talking about the state as um, a, a unified set of institutions and apparatuses which work in tandem with one another. What's interesting to me is the role of propaganda in dramatizing or performing conflicts between different aspects of the state. Now, I know I'm talking to two white guys here, but I live in hope. Have either one of you seen Singham? Right. It's a terrible film. Don't watch it. It's a Bollywood movie, which is essentially BJP propaganda. Um, it was made a few years before Modi came to power, but it may as well almost have, have performed the story of uh, the BJP. So you've got Singham, who is uh, literally named after you know the lion of his village. And he's a village cop who is very moral, but tough. He's got a mustache and aviator glasses because he's a, he's a cop in a Bollywood movie. And he um, drives around his, his um, constituency. What do you call the ter territory of a cop? Beat. His beat. Dr drives around his beat. Um, I'm going to go with territory as if he's a cat, like, you know, <laughs> pissing on furniture. Um, so he, he drives around saving Hindu women from being manhandled by uh, ethnic and religious minorities in the south of India. And then he gets transferred to the big city of Goa. And then the main politician in Goa, who is a kind of flimsy stand-in for, you know, a Congress incumbent and is very corrupt and involved with drugs, keeps on uh, harassing Singham and will do something to thwart his good policing work and then drive off going, welcome to Goa, Singham. And then the happy ending of this whole movie is that the police of Goa, led by Singham, stage a fascist coup after the Congress politician has won another election fraudulently in the film, um, and they murder him and stage it to look like a suicide. And that's the happy ending of this oh, movie. Wow. <laughs> and so thinking about the role of propaganda, um, we've, again, like I said, been talking about the state as, as um, a unified 
object. But thinking about the specific role of propaganda, its role in saying the police come in and they deal with the corrupt and decadent world of politics and the police come in with this moral binary of right and wrong and they will solve it. Is that do you think that it also has a role in terms of weakening and corroding faith in democratic institutions? Casper, I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking about the state there. I didn't know about about weakening faith in democratic institutions. I was thinking um, particularly about the way that um, your average cop film uh, seeks to inure us to violence and uh, seeks to make uh, brutality kind of um, seem like part of the process. And so I think that's an important aspect of the uh, of the genre. Um, and I was thinking while you were talking also about this theme of the young country uh, police officer uh, arriving, the newbie on the team who arrives in the big city and then meets uh, these emblems of corruption, these city cops who have been, you know, um, uh, dwelling in these dens of vice and who have been elevated to these figures who are either, either sort of tired and frazzled or corrupt themselves. And then the newbie um, uh, then becomes, enters into a conflict with the older figure and the corrupt figure. Um, and I think that that trope, which you see absolutely everywhere from, you know, Seven through to um, the uh, Lethal Weapon films, you see it in Les Miserables, a French film by Lashley, um, in from uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and that trope is incredibly dangerous because it gives us a sense of um, a sense of hope um, and a sense uh, that the city itself has done something to these police officers that, are, that wasn't of their own making. Um, so I didn't have an answer for you on institutions, but that was something that I had there. Uh, do you have something on institutions, Ben, or are you just going to secretly like watch Singham on your phone while we like? <laughs> <laughs> just like reading the Wikipedia page now. Like. Um, I think, I think what's interesting to kind of bring it back. So one thing that I was thinking when Casper was talking was about Zootopia. Um, <laughs> 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 here talking about I'm so glad I have you two on tonight. So... Is it because I remind you of the, the sexy rabbit in Zootopia? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was exactly it, no. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Zootopia... <laughs> Stop giggling because someone said the word sexy, Ben. Really, no, I was talking childish. about me. I'm talking about Zootopia, and I'm just really excited about this. Okay, so I think that uh, in terms of looking at propaganda and looking at the way in which the police, you know, what you're talking about, this the police are there to uh, to police the institutions, and it's the institutions that are wrong, and maybe it's the city that are wrong, but the police are forced to good. It starts that early. It starts with a kids' film with a banging soundtrack. Um, and it's a great film, but it starts that, you know, that is an inherently like politically dubious film. Um, and I think what was quite good actually about Line of Duty and the end of it, uh, to kind of give it its dues was that it really showed and portrayed the friction between not only the politicking of kind of external forces, but the friction of politics within the police force, um, when the commissioner was resigning and he was saying, you know, like I, you know, he's just done me in, um, that Welsh lad, Osborne, he's just done me in, you know, if I, if I fire him, I lose the rank and file. Uh, if I just accept it, then I look weak. You know, you're kind of looking at these other forces in this and this idea of the police as a political force, I think is actually really important. And if we transpose that onto uh, say, for example, the Kill the Bill protest or the Sarah Everard vigil um, specifically. You know, and that was an instance of, you know, in the run up to it, there was a lot of friction. You know, the, the kind of pop up group uh, Reclaim These Streets went to court to get a court order to say that it was legal within coronavirus legislations to hold a protest. It just the police had to agree to it. And then the cops, um, you know, depending on depending on what you believe and depending on on what memos you've seen, um, there's a lot of evidence that says it kind of comes from 
from Pretty Patel, etc. Um, I haven't seen that and I'm not expressly saying that, but um, the cops then said, well, no, we're not doing that. And then obviously we saw the scenes that happened at the vigil. We saw the cops, you know, run in, batten, grieving women, throw them to the floor all over the TV. And suddenly what you had was cop in chief, Keir Starmer, actually was forced into doing something and um, expressing an opinion. And that was the moment when he actually decided to to not oppose the policing bill. That was the moment when he was like, my hands are tied. And obviously, across the country, you had various different politicians calling for Cressida Dick's uh, resignation. Sadiq Khan came out very strongly against it, and um, which was you know, a, quite a big moment, given the kind of history of the policing of protests in this country. Um, and then what happened was the police obviously then absolved themselves of any wrongdoing via a report on that night. And the police were suddenly then out there saying, well, we need we need apologies from politicians because you've got the Tories who are there backing them no matter what they do. No matter what the police do, Pretty Patel will put out a thing in the morning saying, how dare this mob come? On the night after, the police battered children in Bristol into submission with dogs using riot shields as weapons on the faces of young women sitting on the floor. Boris Johnson came out and said it was an, a mob intent on violence. You've got them, they, they're solid. Labour have shown some moral backbone here and suddenly the police are coming out as a political force. And what will be interesting is to see how that kind of carries on. Obviously, um, they haven't really kept up that uh, like moral backbone. You had Marvin Rees very much capitulating in, in Bristol over, over everything that was going on and uh, Starmer has remained pretty silent on everything else. But how this kind of develops as the Kill the Bill protests go on over the summer, how this develops with various other bits of protest and unrest that will come up and the way that the police are, are positioning themselves as a, as a political force. I think that was really important actually, that we saw that and that viewers got to see um, that part of the police on primetime television on Sunday night. So for that, Line of Duty was good. All right, cool, so I can keep watching it. Sick. All right. Well, I, I, this is a really good moment to move on to the way in which um, the fictional world of policing and also the culture of um, making propaganda has had to be responsive to political movements and, and moments of polarization around the police, because the line between fictional police and the real world of criminal justice isn't always easy to draw. So last summer at the height of the BLM protests, uh, two really prominent reality series, uh, Cops, which is very famous and on Paramount, and Live PD, uh, which are those programs where you follow a police department and watch them chase people down and arrest them. Uh, those two shows were cancelled because they were seen to have uh, glamorised these confrontations in such a way which also really demonized um in particular working class people and racial minorities as being inherently criminal um also at around the same time you had one of the writers on law and order special victims unit being fired from his job because he was posting on social media when uh, the protests were happening that he would light up uh looters so that he would go out and shoot them so here we've got this like blurring of the lines between fiction and real world a writer on a piece of propaganda um articulating these very violent threats on the one hand and then on the other you have the responsiveness of uh you know the 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 media industrial complex to uh th these uh, political um movements so i wanted to ask both of you how do you think the continuation of Black Lives Matter and potentially the escalation of Kill the Bill here in the UK might impact the way in which fiction is made. How do you think propaganda might absorb or react to these political upheavals? Just to, to come back on that, I think a really interesting show that also had to reconfigure its way of working around that time that you mentioned is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, which announced that it was going to rewrite four episodes of its forthcoming season um, in order to address police brutality. 
So we can also see that in something as popular as that programme, which I think is probably the most effective piece of propaganda that there is, because it covers itself in this veneer of um, uh, of right-onness and indeed of minority rights and representation. Um, I, th I think you already see the, the, the beginning of programmes like that that um, have no real reason left to exist and they're fighting for their lives. So I think that's a really interesting example. And Chelsea Peretti, the show of this, one of the stars of the show, said that they should basically just disband the force and that should be the end of the programme. <laughs> I really love the idea of that as like the end of a TV show, like, whoop, police got abolished. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> as to how the UK is going to be forging ahead in the wake of Black Lives Matter, I think we already got an indication of that um, with... Uh, Two, two things that came out recently. So um, Black Klansman and Red, White and Blue. Um, so the Spike Lee film from 2018 and Red, White and Blue, the Steve McQueen film from last year, which both do something fairly similar in that they take the real life story of a black police officer and their efforts, however stymied, to bring about change in the force or to combat racism. And so I think that what we see there is an attempt to um, cite these stories in reality rather than dream up these absurd fictions that they know aren't convinc convincing anybody anymore. Um, and the way that Black Lives Matter has manifested itself is in kind of uh, gratingly showing us these black figures who uh, are somehow able to be heroic characters rather than by getting subsumed by the mediocrity of the police, which is most often what happens. So we're still finding hero narratives, but drawing them from real life. And that gives these programs are further cachet because however good Red, White and Blue was, and it did really do that thing of showing the mundanity of the police really, really well, um, however effective it was at that, it still it doesn't quite get there on the police itself, I think. I mean, with Red, White and Blue, I, I was really interested in, in watching it and I got to interview Leroy Logan, uh, the real police officer behind the story afterwards for me what was interesting about it is that Steve McQueen ends the film not when Leroy Logan himself perceives his heroic narrative to happen because Leroy Logan uh historicizes that as the work that he did immediately following uh the Stephen Lawrence inquiry the work they did in Stephen Lawrence um steering group and that for him is his hero moment um and the Steve McQueen story ends with that shot of him and his father kind of exhausted and worn out by the experience of racism and sitting there together. So it's interesting to me the way in which Steve McQueen, I think, in order to deal with that tension, which is the minute you start digging into the realities of police racism, you can no longer have a upbeat ending is to just sort of cut the story off. And it's very much not how Leroy Logan tells his own story. And the film is subversive as well, because when asked for his reasons for becoming a police officer and when he's consulting his family and his partner, McQueen puts a scene in there where his girlfriend says, also, it'll appeal to your vanity and your machismo. <laughs> and, mm. and that's a really lovely touch. And yet I can't help but feel that Steve McQueen, who himself has accepted an honour from the Queen, um, presents this story of somebody's um, redemption isn't the word, somebody's validation by the system, mm. almost, not unironically, but he does tell it straight up for the major part, I think. I think that was an interesting thing that Leroy said to me. I think it was off camera. Um, but he said to me that when Steve McQueen talked to him about his life story, he literally asked him, did you join the police force after your father was racially assaulted by them because you don't really love your father? So I think there was something he was trying to get into, which was almost the the pathology of joining the police force um, after having experienced racism and the racist violence of the police so personally and so directly. But I think that, again, it doesn't... It, uh, 
I don't think it comes down on necessarily an, an abolitionist way of telling the story, um, which then leads me to the last question that I wanted to pose to uh, both of you, which is, is there such a thing as abolitionist storytelling when it comes to depicting, uh, you know, police and law enforcement as a site of work, if not, you know, heroism? I mean, we've not seen it, but it's possible. I think that, you know, like film um, film and, and television and media, um, particularly kind of like fiction, fictional portrayals of a world that we could live in are an important way of imagining and, and helping to kind of convince people what a world could look like. And so, you know, there's definitely space for, and when we make the, when we make these demands around defunding the police, when we make these demands around abolishing the police, it is incredibly difficult. If you've kind of grown up in, in this society and you've grown up in this system, you're told over and over again, whether it be, you know, at school or from propaganda or just generally in society, the police are there to, to protect you and to help you. Um, it's really difficult to kind of imagine what that life without them could look like and it's scary and i think that there is a space and we should be pushing for it to try and look at what a world without cops looks like without a an institutional police force looks like um we're not there and and no beef but line of duty certainly isn't anywhere close to it um but, you know, I think like, Chelsea Peretti was probably onto something. Actually, one of the most powerful things that those writers could do. And, you know, like they, they tried to do, they tried, they did a Me Too um, episode in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was, you know, it was powerful, but it was within, it's the very much within the framework of the police are there to, for good. They did, um, they did a racial profiling episode, uh, which again, with, you know, had some power behind it, but very much, within the framework of the police being a force for good in order to break that you, you really do have to just kind of smash it and the kind of safest way i guess for a lot of people to experience that is on the screen so maybe one day we'll see that and that can be kind of a jump start into these wider conversations about that we've been trying to sort of have um, what about you, Casper? Have you ever seen anything that even looks like abolitionist uh, filmmaking or content making around the police? Or do you think that we actually just have to divest ourselves of the fascination uh, with police departments as a workplace if you want to sort of start approaching abolitionist horizons in cultural production? I mostly agree with Ben that we need to be telling other stories that can give us an understanding of what justice and 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 true caring for one another might mean in a world where the police aren't a necessary force and where we have managed to conceive of our society as something other than ruled by these authoritarian sorry authoritarian fuckheads. So that has to be kind of the domain of science fiction because unfortunately or it could be it could be films that go back to pre-police times because we all know that those times also existed you know to show what kind of stuff was going on then i've seen some films that i think are, are really interesting in showing kind of the mediocrity of the police they're f um few and far between but um uh, something like Police Adjective, a Romanian film from, from 2009, is really interesting because it just shows how banal this investigation undertaken by a cop is and how he um, comes face to face with elders who aren't at all interested in questions of ethics and morality. And just for how painstaking and detailed and tedious the investigation is, it's a really, it's an incredible, quite sort of fantastic kind of film. And you see that in, in other films as well, you know, for instance, Bad Lieutenant, the Abel Ferrara film, where um, everything is just so scuzzy and sleazy and disgusting, or, um, or Basic Instinct, where the police officers are just so completely grim. Those, those films... Um, give us a different portrayal of the police, I think, but they don't go so far as to consider what a world might be without them. No, I don't think, I don't think we've had that fully. See, I can't believe that you guys are talking about, oh, we've not truly seen abolitionist uh, filmmaking when it comes to the police and not one of you has remembered Officer Dibble from Top Cat. <laughs> <laughs> what is Officer Dibble? 
What is Officer Dibble? Officer Dibble I didn't was... grow up in this country, Ash. I don't know. No, 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 no. That's a one top cat, American. Um, and two top cat, excellent. Um, top cat being a band of alley cats who are constantly trying to steal and scam their way to comfort and luxury. And then you've, they're constantly pursued by Officer Dibble, um, who is protecting... Uh, the interests of capital and the elites against Top Cat and his friends. But he's also not very clever and is constantly outwitted by Top Cat again and again. Um, so, yeah, never seen abolitionist filmmaking. Watch Top Cat. <laughs> I thought that the, the yellow guy was called Top Cat. I didn't realise the whole thing was... was yeah, the is, whole show is called Top Cat. And, and the yellow yeah. guy, i.e. the Top yeah. Cat in Top Cat, uh, is also called... That's top smart, cat. you know. That's some good writing. Maybe I'll watch it. In it. <laughs> no, definitely watch it. Definitely watch it. Okay. Can I just say on the subject of, of for stuff for kids, mm-hmm. um, if there are any parents watching, uh, steer them away from Paw Patrol, which is the most egregious example of, of propaganda that exists in <laughs> the modern world. And it's aimed at kids with the intention of turning every kid alive into a narc. So I think it's really important to Steer, steer clear of that one. Right, so steer clear of Paw Patrol and, you know, get your kids watching Top Cat because it'll teach you all the values of solidarity and no snitching and, you know, run from the cops that children really need to learn in this world. Um, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Ben, Casper, thank you so much for joining me this evening to talk about all the things that matter most, Fast and Furious, Officer Dibble, uh, and, you know, secondarily, the institution of the police and the stranglehold they exert over our lives. And thank all of you for watching. Make sure you hit subscribe if you've enjoyed this discussion. And if you really enjoyed this discussion, you can go to navara.media forward slash support and bung us a few quid why not if you hate this discussion bung us a few more quid and then maybe we can improve the caliber of our content uh you have been watching downstream on navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support <laughs>